Here we are. <laughs> Here we are. I made it. We're recording this at like 10.20. We're, you know, I, I can only speak for myself. I'm still slightly hungover from a good party <laughs> epic through last night. Um, I thought I was going to be hungover, and then I realized I mostly drank mocktails. I didn't realize it until uh, afterwards, but <laughs> there must have been a placebo effect. <laughs> uh, well, that's, that's the move. Um, anyway. Jacob, what are we doing here today? That's a great question. Um, I think this is uh, labeled as the unofficial Unreal Engine podcast, uh, mostly because we don't particularly want to get sued. Um, <laughs> or at least I, I, only want to, I don't want to get sued, and so uh, it's unofficial. But here we are, we're talking about Unreal, and this is our first episode. Yeah. I, I think one thing we're both wondering is, um, why doesn't this already exist? Why yeah, hasn't, for, it feels like if you looked on, you know, iTunes or whatever, you should be able to find at least one ongoing Unreal Engine focused podcast that should have existed over the past like 15 years and no Thanks. such thing can be found. So <laughs> what do you think is going on? I, I don't know. I, I guess uh, people don't like talking about it Unreal as much as we do, or maybe they don't yet, right? That's, yeah. that's the goal. I, I, I was wondering this too, and, and my hypothesis is that because Unreal Engine is primarily a visual medium, you know, of course there's thousands of YouTube channels and all yeah. that. So the challenge here, uh, if we want to take it up, is how do you make speaking about Unreal Engine interesting in a uh, primarily audio format? Yeah, I think that is that is a challenge. I mean, it, because now we're going to have to like philosophize, right, about mm -hmm. Unreal Engine uh, on top of like trying to vocalize like techniques probably at some point. Like at some point you're going to have to teach me how to like, you know, use some some UE5 features, uh, you know, <laughs> completely verbally, right? It's going to be like one of those um one of those like uh uh you know, when a plane gets out of control, like, are there any pilots? And they, they pull, some, you know, someone out of their seat that was just, like, taking a nap or watching a movie, right? Pull them into the cockpit. You get ground control on. Okay, here's what you got to do, right? That's what it's going to be. I'm going to sit in front of my computer. You're just going to have to teach me entirely with audio how to, how to like, make, it, make some, some game or something, right? That sounds pretty good to me. Um, Jacob, <laughs> why don't we start by uh, just speaking a little bit about... Uh, who we are and and our history with Unreal Engine, just to set some context. Sure. You first. Uh, me first. <laughs> All right. I, I mean, I really got into Unreal Engine um, kind of by accident. I it was for me my I want to say my sophomore year of college. I had like finals, and I didn't want to study for them. And so I decided instead to stay up all night learning Maya because like I always wanted to know how to like do real 3D models and make games and stuff like that. Um, and then I got my first VR headset. I was like, oh, it'd be really cool if like, I, you know, I've been learning this 3D modeling stuff. It'd be really cool if I could, you know, make a game. And at the time I picked up Unity mm -hmm. um, and, or, or sorry, the, the other game engine that starts with a U. We, you know, <laughs> we can't really like go around throwing Unity on, uh, in, the, in the Unreal Engine podcast. But uh, I was using Unity and then, uh, you know, I was trying to make it work. I couldn't really figure it out. And then I started just Googling like, hey, are there any alternatives that, you know, are a little easier to use? Picked up Unreal and never looked back. I, I loved it pretty instantly just because it, it's the kind of thing that just lets you jump in and start creating, right? And that's, I think, always been 
a big goal for Unreal. It's like things look good as soon as you jump in, and I was hooked. So I started working with Unreal, and I became essentially a VR developer working in, in Unreal Engine. Um, I did architectural visualization. And then, like, I want to say a year or two into working um, at an ArcViz uh, um, studio, you know, building VR experiences, stuff like that, um, I decided to become a, a, an authorized instructor for Epic. So I, you know, took their tests and, and did a few demo classes. And eventually I got a call or really an email from the team at Epic saying, hey, do you want to come in and teach some classes? I said, sure, that sounds great. And so I moonlit as an instructor for a little bit, but I had a full-time job. So eventually uh, I ran out of time and decided, hey, why don't I just talk about it online instead, right? So that's where I am. <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, there's a lot of parallels in our stories with one crucial difference. Um, I did not like Unreal Engine the first time I played with wow. it. Uh, so a little bit of background, uh, things we share in common, you know, architecture and all that. So when I was in architecture school, um, I was not great at hand drafting. The entire first year at Syracuse, you had to do everything uh, without a computer. And uh, I had a few professors who were like, Alex, maybe you're not cut out for this. And the problem was primarily that uh, my art background was very like charcoal, sketch, gestural. And um, whenever I needed to create really clean, nice drawings and models, you know, they'd have like extra glue on them and, and things weren't looking good. Um, but the moment that I was allowed to touch a computer in my second year, first of all, I liked the fact that in my first year I had to do everything by hand because it forced an internalization of concepts related to like line weight and, and materiality and all that. But the moment that I, I was able to use a computer, I found that I could communicate uh, my design intent in a much more clear way. I felt like this whole world had been opened up at first with um, Rhino and then 3D Studio Max and a few other Rhino. pieces of software where once I could start adding animations and, and you know, show all these different design options and, and modify things on the fly with the professor looking over my shoulder, that kind of real-time workflow got me really excited. And so then I started to wonder, is there any way that I could also make this part of the end user experience, something that's more interactive, something that feels more like a video game? Um, I tried to play with things like, you know, Source Engine, uh, couldn't quite get into that. I used some free real-time software. One was called Quest 3D, which was all node-based, and, you know, you'd literally drag in like a thousand nodes for each piece of geometry, and it's like, <laughs> aha, now I've, I've got my model, and you can walk around and turn on the weather. Cool. Uh, and I had another one I liked called Asperian 3D. After I graduated school, started to play more in Unity also. I did find Unity to be pretty intuitive. Um, I was forced to learn it quickly because I got the Oculus Rift DK1 in 2013 and had told my boss, uh, hey, we'd like to play in VR. You know, I think it'd be great for us to visualize all these theaters we're designing inside um, Unity and make it interactive and, and be able to let people look around the hall. And he's like, okay, like, you know, I want to see this in like a week. And once the kit came in, I was like, oh, this doesn't have like software it comes with. It just makes it work. I can't like drag my 3DS Max model into, you know, VR and just have it appear. So I had to very quickly learn, you know, game optimization and what draw calls were and, uh, and C Sharp, uh, actually JavaScript first, then C Sharp to, to code everything in Unity. But I was pretty happy with how quickly I was able to get everything working in there. But after you know designing a lot of Unity experiences over the years, I found that there were a lot of requests in architecture for something that felt uh, more polished, more photorealistic. And to be clear, you absolutely can do those things in Unity. It just didn't come as naturally to me. 
Uh, and I kept hearing people say, oh, if, if that's the goal, maybe try Unreal. Uh, right. But when I first started trying to use Unreal Engine, I found that when I was importing my models into it, they were taking forever and they were crashing. Like I'd take a little Revit file that maybe uh, wasn't even that big. It might be like a, a 400 megabyte Revit file, which in Revit world is nothing. And it would like load in Unreal for a really long time and Unreal would crash or it would be in there and it just wouldn't run well. Um, it wouldn't be smooth. I didn't find the Unreal Engine interface intuitive at first. Um, I spent a lot of time just trying to understand how to find the buttons I was looking for. Um, yeah. But then, so that was like Unreal 4.1 or something like that. But then um, around 2017, uh, Unreal Engine acquired uh, the tools for something that later became called Datasmith. And that, of course, was a, a very robust and, and intuitive way to import data into Unreal Engine. And I started to play around with it a little bit more. And I was doing a, a big real estate project and thought like, oh, this actually might be uh, where I want to be for this project inside Unreal Engine. And I was doing Unity versus Unreal Engine tests. Um, I was on the forums in Unreal Engine asking some questions about Datasmith. And uh, someone named uh, Ken Pimentel over at Epic Games was like, hey, these are really cool in the forums. He said, do you want to uh, speak at Autodesk University uh, 2017? about your experience using Unreal Engine so far. And I thought, oh, that'd be great. And frankly, it also just made me feel very special because I'd been working in Unity at that point for you know seven years almost. And I'd never really had anyone from Unity reach out to me before and be like, this is cool, good job, <laughs> keep it up. Um, so I was already going to Autodesk University to speak uh, on a track that Jeff Model, formerly of CG Architect, now NVIDIA, was curating about um, VR and architecture and all that. So I had a talk that was going on there. And then I gave this great little talk at the Unreal booth, met Sean Hendricks and, and all these other cool people who were hanging out there, um, and then was kind of off to the races, like really enjoyed uh, working uh, directly with the, the Unreal Engine team for a number of projects that, that happened over the years, one big one with Intel, um, working with Glimpse Group, working with my company, Agile Lens, and uh, eventually got to a point where I felt very comfortable in the engine, and just like uh, Jacob, decided it would be fun to become an authorized instructor. And uh, I have kept up with that. I think I've, I've logged something like 300 hours now of, of teaching classes and, and creating a few as well. Um, so it's been a blast and, and I, I love the engine a lot. Um, nowadays doing a lot with, uh, in addition to architecture, live performance, um, cloud streaming, which of course we'll, we'll talk more about. Pixel streaming's a, a wonderful thing with Unreal and uh, very excited about the future. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a good story. That's for sure. I, so taking a step back though, Alex, I, yeah. I think you're the most fit for this question, which is like, let's pretend someone listening to this has no clue what we've said up to this point. <laughs> what, what is Unreal listening. Engine? Like, yeah. what, what is Unreal Engine, right? I, I like the notion that someone has been listening this far and is still yeah to an Unreal Engine like, podcast and I doesn't hope, know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I hope at some point they'll define Unreal Engine. Yeah. Unreal Engine is, um, I hate to call it a gaming engine, but that's the, the simplest way to describe it. It's a, a real-time platform for taking 3D data um, and visualizing it and interacting with it. And it can work on all sorts of different devices. It can work on computers. It can work in VR headsets. It can work on mobile phones. Um, and, you know, anyone who's played a video game understands what it's like to move through a world or an environment and click a button and have something happen. But what's happened over the past 10, 15 years 
is more and more of, of that technology is being repurposed across other industries. So you see things in architecture and automotive and manufacturing and training and education where the goal isn't necessarily to just have fun, but to actually uh, teach people in a more meaningful way than just rote memorization or, or having someone lecture at you. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty uh, good answer. Uh, I, I think that um, the only thing uh, that that's I would add is that Unreal Engine is like everything and nothing, right? In the sense <laughs> that like you can do absolutely anything with Unreal Engine. Yeah. But it's also like uh, um, at the end of the day, it, it's entirely up to you. So like just like any artistic medium, right? You you jump into this and you're just like hit with all these tools, like all this amazing stuff that you can work with, but like. It's still just like a, a generator for your ideas, right? Yeah. And so what's happened is that, yeah, like you said, the gaming industry built this because uh, there was unique technology that they had developed to create real-time graphics that looked great and did all this other stuff. And then people started to have new ideas and started to find like different ways of using the engine, like your story with architecture school and stuff like that. And I think today it's like it's so much more like than a game engine, of course, and it's just become this kind of feeder for people to to come in and all of a sudden just like express themselves in some like unique, fascinating way. I remember the first time like I loaded myself into a like with a VR headset into a world that like I had built in Unreal Real Engine and how like surreal that was having like seen it on my screen and then like kind of understood it to some extent, kind of understood the tools probably at a pretty basic level at that point. And then jumping into it all of a sudden, it was like, it was all around me, right? So it was, it was everything, like it has, has everything I could possibly want. And yet it's still completely like up to me to figure out what it could be used for. And so like tons of people are out there doing so much amazing work inside of Unreal Engine, everything from like simulation to theater, like like you're doing, and then you know everywhere in between. But I, I mean, it's just been incredible to watch, to be honest. I, I, like how many, like how many new use cases for Unreal Engine people are thinking of these days. Yeah, and, and to echo your point, the wonderful and terrifying thing about Unreal Engine is that kind of infinite possibility. Um, I think for those of us that have been using the engine for a while now the the longer you spend in there the more you realize how little you actually know because yeah, there's yeah, you so learn. much <laughs> exactly yeah i've seen people who uh go on a deep dive on a particular topic for a day they're like i really want to know the best way to handle niagara particles for ar in unreal engine and you know after that day they are like a, a subject matter expert on that they have learned everything yeah. that everyone in the world has ever done with that and they know the most about it and that's kind of cool you can become like the 100%. foremost expert on a topic uh pretty quick but the downside is then you know the most about it and then oh wait what do yeah. i do if i run into a problem there aren't right. a lot of people in the world who have tried this so you know uh, it's yeah, a great community. A lot of people try to help each other, but sometimes you're just you're paving new ground, and and uh, you just don't know what to do. Yeah, I, I remember a few years ago when I mean Unreal wasn't quite as like cool kid on the block as it is today. Yeah, trying to like find answers online for stuff was just almost impossible in some cases. Like if you were doing anything outside of 
like very straight and narrow video game stuff. You you wouldn't find it, but you might find like a search about Unity and then kind of be like, oh, I don't know what that term means. And you'll start like looking through the Unreal documentation. Like the number of hours we've probably collectively spent looking through Unreal documentation is probably <laughs> absurd. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's changing so much. So I, I mean, I, I think one of the big things that's on everyone's mind is the big major you know, version update to Unreal, Unreal 5, right? How, how do you think that's made an impact in terms of bringing Unreal to more use cases, you know, and, and generating more ideas? Yeah, that's a great question. And something I've really appreciated about um, Epic over the years is when there's something new coming out, they tend to, first of all, uh, showcase it early, and then they release it early. They don't feel like they need to have everything polished and, and super stable, <laughs> for better sure. or for worse, when it comes out, which means that they can do something like release, you know, that Matrix demo that first came out, I think, on just Xbox and, and PS5. And then, you know, a few months later say, oh, here's the 150 gigabyte, like, source <laughs> version of that. You can open yeah. this up, play with it, do whatever you want. And uh, there's a lot of that kind of stuff they've done over the years where it's like, here's a getting starting point. I mean, for Unreal Engine 5, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, you know, Unreal Engine 5 only released officially, uh, I think back in like March, but they did a early access release of it, you know, a year ago or a year before that. Um, so there's always this kind of idea of, hey, you know, this stuff isn't quite stable yet. It might crash. It might break. But give it a try. Have some fun. Yeah. See if this is a workflow you want to start to understand. And of course, uh, what's wonderful about Unreal Engine 5 is there's some pretty unprecedented advancements in there such as um, Lumen, which is a, a real-time global illumination system that allows for movable lights. You don't have to worry about baking as much anymore. You can get great performance with uh, real-time lighting and shadows. Uh, also uses virtual shadow maps. And then the other big feature everyone talks about is Nanite, which is almost like a, a pixel-level LOD system where you can have billions and billions and billions of polygons in your scene. And as long as your computer can at least hold that in RAM, you can still achieve uh, really excellent frame rates because uh, basically as you zoom out, it's not calculating those billions of polygons. It's kind of scaling it down to like, well, what can I see on a pixel level? And if there's 10,000 polygons that are only taking up one pixel, it's really only gonna register as one polygon. So yeah. the 10 billion polygon scene might actually only need uh, 100,000 triangles of calculation, which yeah. is there, pretty cool. There's an incredible talk that, I don't know if you saw this, it, it, it was going around Twitter a little bit. Um, Brian Karras gave a talk at High Performance Graphics uh, the convention where he was talking about Nanite and, but he, he wasn't just talking about like how Nanite works, which is kind of a talk that he's done a couple times. I, I recommend people check it out because like, even if some of the terms are over your head, like there were definitely a few terms that were over my head because that guy's brilliant. <laughs> um, but he gave a talk where he wasn't just talking about, Oh, here's how Nanite works. He was saying he was kind of going through his journey of like, why he decided to to like pursue this and and how he got the commitment from epic to build something like this and i think it's a pretty fascinating story i really recommend people check it out um, but one of the things he was talking about is his goal from the start was like he thought that one of the biggest challenges or one of the the biggest unsolved problems in game engines was the fact that you you had to alter like an artist like process and really slow down everything in order to meet, you know, requirements for like geometry detail, right? Mm -hmm. So 
historically, you know, an artist might make a super high poly model in something like ZBrush or whatever it is, right? And then in order to make it like game ready, you have to take that and you got to crunch it. You know, you got to yeah. absolutely destroy it. You got to do things like, uh, you know, texture baking and all this other stuff to kind of cheat it. And at the end of the day, like the artist might not be happy with that, right? Like the mm -hmm. artist might, might not enjoy that. And I think the, the unanimous decision is that like the majority of an artist's time in games is spent like simplifying assets. And that's just like, that makes no sense, right? It's a drag. Um, and, and he also mentioned that apparently studios just really don't keep around high poly assets because they're not useful. And so the next, when they go to make the next game, they, they can't reuse it because like gra people have different expectations for graphics at that point, right? So they have to go and like remake all these models. So you're saying that like that motivated him to say, man, there has to be a solution for this. And he was the guy who worked on virtual texturing inside of Unreal. And eventually he saw his chance with Unreal 5 to like go out and build what he had been dreaming of. And, and that became Nanite. But it was not a straight path. So I really recommend you check out the talk because he kind of shows like, oh, man, I there were so many different routes he went down. He was talking about voxels. He was talking about all these different techniques and papers that he, that he was riffing off of. And then he finally got to the point where he was like, oh, no, we really can just do this with triangles. And I mean, it's extremely novel the, the way he, he built it, of course. He's doing all sorts of magic is, is how I would cap it here, right? Like, it's, it's pretty incredible. And at the very opening of the talk, he opened up um, this data set from uh, Moana, mm. a Pixar data set. And like Pixar data sets are, file, right? yeah, are yeah. legendary for being incredibly, incredibly difficult to, to, like, to use, practically speaking, mm. because internally they have enormous workstations that they would open one of these files up on just to edit. You know, we're talking like hundreds of billions of polygons, like millions of instances. Like he was flying around inside of Unreal at like 45 frames a second looking at like individual like little spouts of like uh, of like uh, grass or like mold on rocks, like mm. or like individual pebbles like the size of like grains of sand. And all of that was just running, right? And wow. and I mean, that's that's really just incredible. The the fact that like so much can be, can be done today that was impossible just because he was committed to like fixing this, this challenge. Jacob, is this podcast going to have show notes? Can we put some links in the show notes? Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> see why not. Like, uh, I think we'll, we'll probably upload this to, to a few places including yeah, YouTube. Sure. So like check a description. I don't know. Check a little, like, well, we'll post it somewhere. People yeah, should I definitely check out this talk. Yeah, and, and by the way, anyone who's listening to this, as you can tell, Jacob and I are kind of feeling out, like, what kind of podcast should yeah. this be? What do we talk about? Do we assume people have no knowledge of the subject matter and they're trying to learn about it? Do we assume beginner knowledge, novice, expert? Um, if, if you are like, I just want to hear you guys do deep dives into all the technical details of Unreal or, you know, talk about specific use cases, like, we'd love that feedback. We'd love yeah, to hear 100%. what you think would make an interesting podcast, because I think there's a there's 50 different versions of this that uh, between Jacob and I we could we could make so you know we're happy to talk about all this stuff so let us know what you would like us to talk about <laughs> definitely definitely I, I I think I told Alex that I mean I would just be talking about Unreal anyways so like right. we might as well record it right yeah but we can we can definitely take it a, a dozen different routes so definitely leave some feedback for us we'd love to hear it yeah. 
that's very um this generation i was gonna i was gonna say what's the what's the latest generation called but the idea of like why bother doing something if it's not also going to be recorded and broadcast to the public right <laughs> right exactly yeah I, we, we gotta we gotta get our fix of content creation right I, yeah I, mean, I don't have an i don't have an outlet right now <laughs> yeah. you, you're pretty active on twitter i feel like you kind of have your 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 outlet for for talking to the world like how how did you how did you start getting active in like Unreal Engine Twitter? Like how did that happen? Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I was not uh, an active Twitter user for a very long time. I think I created my account in like you know two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and uh, was like, oh, you only have one hundred forty characters. There's there's no way to express yourself here. And then eventually, um, I guess it would have been around when I started to get much more into to VR and AR because I started to pick up on probably Kent Bai was probably my way in yeah. uh, doing vo the Voices of VR podcast. Shout out and Kent I started Bai. to, yeah, yeah, I started to follow um, what he was doing because he'd mentioned sometimes in his podcast, like, by the way, I've done a big Twitter thread about the Venice Film Festival or something. And so I'd go there and I'd see, you know, 30 posts from him talking about all the different pieces. And I started to just, you know, participate in those conversations and, and get connected with a lot of people in the, uh, Unreal Engine, Unity, VR, AR, XR, real-time technology uh, communities. And then I found, oh, Twitter can actually be a really wonderful place as long as you're following and, and speaking to the right people. Like, I fortunately have had very few poor or even, you know, trolly experiences on Twitter, and I know that's kind of uh, rare. But I, I mostly have found it to be a, a, a group of people that feel that the rising tide raises all boats. We should all help each other and support each other. Um, I, I have a lot of friends that I could technically call like competitors with me over the years. And there are plenty of times where uh, we've been happy to share fixes and, and uh, ways of going about our workflows to, to help each other out, which is pretty cool. Um, but you know, I, I like the fact that Twitter requires a certain conciseness now. I, I like the idea that you need to communicate um, things relatively uh, quickly. And, um, and especially for folks like us who are super busy and on the go all the time. I also like being able to very quickly get a broad overview of something by, by skimming through, you know, a yeah. few tweets. And, uh, and that's certainly not how I'd get my news, but for if it's like, Oh, Hey, something's happening with snap or magic leap or yeah, meta. That, that was uh, sad. Yeah. 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 For, for those listening to this later, like yesterday, um, the news was that snap was laying off 20% of its workforce, which is unfortunate. And, and of course brought to mind, uh, what people referred to as the magic leap snap, that snap referring to the moment in the Avengers, et cetera, et cetera. But Magic Leap also had a, a very large um, and sudden layoff uh, of a lot of their devs. So it sounds like Snap is still fairly committed to the AR space, but um, uh, a lot of their other departments were hit pretty hard because I think they've lost something like 80% of their market share um, yeah. in this year alone, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, I mean, these. it seems like uh, pretty often... Um, inside the the AR VR community, you get or you know businesses, you get these shakeups because I think to some extent, like AR VR and a lot of this stuff is it's out there, right? Like it, it it's a it's a big idea, and I think a lot of people just aren't chasing big ideas, you know, at, at a lot of these these companies. That's not mm -hmm. always the case. There's always people internally who are and are passionate about these things. And then the larger entity, a public company, can't always be about big ideas. It ha sometimes it has to be about, you know, uh, uh, the the balance sheet, so to speak. So it's it's always sad to see this stuff, but 
at the end of the day, you know that those people are going to go out and still spread their ideas elsewhere. And now they have this, you know, quote unquote, like the fire burning under them to go out there and like really show that, no, this is real. Like, and I, I, I know a lot of the ex magic leap guys yeah. that went out and did really cool stuff or still, you know, still doing really cool stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, they got picked up by, uh, by companies like Niantic and Apple uh, yeah. and Meta. And then some of them started their, their own companies, uh, which is really cool to see as well. So, you know, it's not all, uh, all bad when, when some big, reckoning like this happens in a company no yeah sometimes uh, i i mean i i definitely feel very bad for the folks who were obviously let out of a job that always that always sucks like there's no way around that but um it's always interesting to see where they go next and and mm -hmm. i'll definitely be following along because uh, this a, a, a decent example of this also happened with um a lot of vfx studios right around like kind of uh late covid disney started kind of laying off specific studios that were no longer kind of aligned with like the Marvel dream, I guess. Um, yeah. And they started going out and now like Netflix has their own studio. They're like, at, like half X, like Disney, Pixar, et cetera, guys. Right. And it's really cool because now they get to like reinvent themselves. Like they get to reinvent like their process and their pipeline. A ton of them are looking at stuff like unreal. Right. Um, and so Love death and robots. Yeah. <laughs> Love death and robots, by the way. Uh, I, I got to speak at an event uh, hosted by uh, Chaos Group, now just called Chaos in Sofia, Bulgaria. And I was really excited for my talk, and then I realized my talk was happening at the same time as uh, Blur Animation Studios, who, who does uh, a lot of Love, Death, and Robots, and was like, oh, I, I'd rather go see their talk than my <laughs> talk. And I was, I was really grateful to the like 20 people who showed up uh, to see me speak. But it is very cool to think that now we're at that point where um, an entire really excellent looking film can be done entirely in Unreal. And, and again, going back to yeah. things like the tech demos, like there's a really cool uh, Meerkat uh, Hawk yeah. demo that you can download and install and, and take a look at and has all these incredible grooms and all the control rig stuff is there for changing, you know, the animation data. Um, it's it's really amazing how much of this just gets released free for, for anyone to take a look yeah. at. That was Weta, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, that was done by Weta, um, who now is owned by Unity, which is an, another point of conversation. Yeah, I, they're like, yeah, I, I, I've said this a couple times to, to Alex, I think, but like, no one knew Weta was for sale, right? I think yeah. everyone was like, wow, that's so cool. Like, no one knew you could just buy Weta, right? Like, <laughs> at the end of the day, it wasn't, you know, their, their film production team, I think, is still uh, privately owned. And then all the pipeline, the tools, like, all that stuff is now owned by Unity. But when that news came out and, and there wasn't any, like, detail about it, I was like, I, did anyone know that you could buy Weta, right? Like, yeah. that's so cool. Like, who who doesn't want to buy Weta? Like that, that's the coolest thing. This cool, one of the coolest places on the planet, you know? Yeah, and I admit the thing that surprised me the most there was I had just assumed, maybe incorrectly, that most of Weta's uh, work was being done in Unreal in terms of, of real-time technology. Because, uh, you know, Magic Leap, they had an Unreal Engine experience called Dr. Gordvart's Invaders, where you yep. have, like, robots coming in through walls. And, of course, things like, you know, the Meerkat demo and all that. Um, so I, I thought that Weta had all these tools built out in Unreal. And so I wonder if, if what's going on with Unity now is if they need to, like, somehow translate those kinds of things into Unity or if they're just going to do entirely new stuff. I'll be curious to see how that all plays yeah, out. Yeah, I, I think it, it, there's probably a bunch of motivating factors for, for Unity. I think, to, to be honest, they're just pretty behind on a lot of the, mm -hmm. 
the film animation stuff um, because it's never been their focus. Like uh, the majority of Unity has always been about either indie games or you know like uh, licensing the engine for you know larger game studios, and and they really haven't been focusing on film because like there's a graphical style to a Unity game that you can yeah. like you can pick it out like. If if you show me a game, I can I can definitely tell you if it's <laughs> Unity. I might not be able to tell you if it's like Unreal or like I don't Cry know. Engine. I mean, like CryEngine for a while looked a lot like Unreal in terms of yeah. like some of the ways the the lighting looked and, and their uh, you know their lookup tables for color. But Unity always looks like Unity, right? right? Like every Unity indie game has the Unity indie game look, and I think they're trying their best to make it so that. It, it appeals to like film, TV, and a bunch of these other guys. And, and like, there's still a ton of people doing stuff like simulation, I think, in, in Unity. Mm-hmm. Um, but any, anything that kind of requires visual fidelity, like Unreal has really become the, the, the king for that because it's always looked better. You know, mm-hmm. right when you jump in, like, you're un- like, if you load up the basic template in Unreal, like, it looks way better than if you just load in like an empty template in Unity. And at the end of the day, that, that really matters to a lot of these people, right? Like you're, you're talking to your VFX supervisor at a, you know, at a studio today and you're like, hey, we should check out this real-time thing. And you open up Unity, he's gonna be like, wow, this looks terrible. Like, <laughs> yeah, because you don't have like the HD pipeline installed. You don't have like blah, 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 right? You open up Unreal, like, wow, this looks really awesome, right? You just, oh, let me drag in an asset, right? That's how this like gets started, right? Um, so I, I think Unity kind of sees that as as a problem because, to be honest, this is where stuff is going, right? Like, their business is going to expand way beyond games, and I think, I mean, Unreal just has a really great head start. Yeah, and then everything that happened after Epic Games acquired um, Three Lateral and Cubic Motion um, and led to all the incredible work with MetaHumans. You yep. see Unity kind of making a, a parallel move, acquiring. Um, Ooh, uh, Zevo Dynamics and, and uh, the really excellent like facial animation uh, and, and digital human work being done over there. So, you know, I want that competition. I want there to be an arms race here. Yeah. One of the, the saddest things in VR has been that it's really just been a space owned by Meta. There's competitors out there like HTC and Pico and the Valve Index, but they're not really competitors because none of them can hit a 300 or now $400 um, price point for a VR headset. It seemed like Google was gonna be there for a while. Um, on my shelf over here, I have the Mirage Solo 6 DOF dev kit uh, that cool. was around for a bit, which is, it's basically a, a Quest, a Quest 1. And then Google was like, bah, never mind. Um, so I like healthy competition. And, and I think you and I have a unique perspective on all this, being familiar with both Unity and Unreal Engine-based workflows. So the more they can you know, get each other to, to up each other's game, uh, the better. Yeah, I, I think that's that's very true. I I'm probably still never going to switch to Unity, but I mean I, I think that uh, yeah, it's always good to have competition in the space. And and talking about the VR stuff, I think that's 100% true. Like the hardware, the VR AR hardware scene was like the super like clash of the titans for a while. Like it was all the biggest companies in the world going out and trying to trying to make these devices, mm-hmm. and they all kind of failed either because they didn't meet like the the expectations of the the user like i mean the daydream the early daydream headsets the the like the microsoft windows vr headsets like the <laughs> a, you know early ones i mean they still the have way, like visual leds which pisses me off 
Um, I was going to say, if we want to go on rants, like it drives me crazy yeah. that Microsoft started referring to their VR headsets as Windows Mixed Reality oh, because yeah. there was already confusion about like what's mixed reality, what's virtual reality, what's augmented reality, and for them to call virtual reality mixed reality just turned everything into a mess. <laughs> it was, yeah. I mean, it's always yeah. But yeah. All, all these guys just kind of fought at it, and then the, I guess the only people that were willing to kind of stick it out was was Meta or. I guess Oculus at the time, and and I think we could talk a long time about how upset we we are about the the Oculus to Meta transition. I mean, Oculus yeah. was like, there's still people like who say, do you have any Oculuses? Like plural, <laughs> because they're talking about VR headsets, right? Like yeah. that brand was great. Everyone loved it, and it, it just had like to Kleenex. be yeah. had to be zucked, right? I know, I know. Yeah. So, you know, as we wrap up the podcast, because we both have other meetings we need to get to, um, again, there's there's so much here that we'd love to, to dive into in future episodes. I could even imagine calling episodes topics. We could have like an episode that's, you know, uh, obviously it's easy for us to talk about things like Unity versus Unreal. I could imagine an episode that's based around the idea of like, um, is Unity really better than Unreal at exporting to multiple platforms? And like yeah. that could be a discussion. Um, VR, AR, what's that like? Um, what, what are those workflows like right now? I'm doing a lot of tests with uh, Unreal 5.1 at the moment because uh, Unreal Engine 5, uh, that release was more tailored toward gaming and not as much necessarily towards enterprise or architecture or uh, even VR or AR. So that doesn't support uh, Luminar Nanite. In fact, that yeah. hurts the VFX industry as well because nothing with stereo or end display or any kind of IC VFX stuff works with Luminar Nanite yet. But some of those features are coming online in Unreal Engine 5.1, which anyone can actually download from the source it, at GitHub, which is pretty cool. And I'm starting to see some really exciting things there on the horizon for um, that core Unreal Engine 5 tech making its way into other industries. So yeah, I could imagine us doing a deep dive into um, what the state and future is of XR and Unreal Engine. I could imagine doing a whole bunch of stuff about just architecture, live performance, cloud computing. These are all things that I think we'd be thrilled to uh, do yeah. some deep dives on. Or every episode could just be this kind of free-flowing yeah, stream know. of consciousness. We've got to have some guests on as well. So Yeah, we've got to have guests. I mean, we got to, yeah, we got, we got to have some guests to come on and talk about some of these topics. So, um, definitely throw down some ideas wherever you're listening, watching, whatever it is, and let us know what you want to, want to chat about. Um, because we can just talk and talk about this stuff. That's for sure. I think we have to do an episode just about 5.1 too. I think we got to just yeah. like go through the feature list and just nerd out over the oh, different yeah. features yeah. they're adding. Yeah. Just scroll through the roadmap and say, oh, cool, strata wow, materials. That's, cool. yeah. wow. that's what I do. That's what I do in my yeah. spare time is I talk to myself about Unreal Engine 5, you know, like 5.1, right? I, I talk to my five and seven year old about it and they go, what's that? Oh, that's cool. <laughs> they go, oh, well, let me tell <laughs> you, it's very exciting. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you for listening, watching, whatever you're doing. And yeah, please give us some feedback. Let us know what you like, what you didn't like. And um, we'll talk to you soon. The experiment continues. There you go. <laughs>